Welcome to the 10th episode of our podcast series for advisors considering the independent space. Today's episode is Dollars and Cents, How a Move to Independence Really Adds Up. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com and on wealthmanagement.com, as well as iTunes and other resources. We've talked a lot in this series about what it means to be independent, how you get from here to there, and how to determine which version of independence is right for you. But I thought in this episode, I would address the number one question we get from prospective breakaway advisors, which is, how do the economics of going independent compare to the present value of taking a recruiting deal that is a big upfront check from another major firm. And while deals are down, the recruiting packages being offered at the wirehouse firms are down, it is still very possible for a top advisor to get a top deal. And so asking that question is a valid one. Let's first make some assumptions and use an advisor that I'll call Jill for purposes of this episode, just to make the comparison more tangible. So let's presume Jill has been with the same firm, a wirehouse in a big city for her whole career, say 20 years. She generates around $3 million in annual revenue or production. 75% of that production is fee-based and she manages just north of $350 million in assets. She's a great advisor and one that every firm and independent model would love to have. She's grappling with many of the same frustrations that so many of her colleagues who are also employees around the industry are grappling with. Too much bureaucracy, a change in culture, an overall loss of autonomy and control. And she's beginning to think that perhaps it's time to consider options elsewhere. Plus, Jill is keenly aware that there are services she would like to offer her ever-increasing high net worth client base and that her entrepreneurial DNA is not allowed to flourish under the status quo. So while she doesn't know what she doesn't know and she's what we describe as comfortably uncomfortable, she has the inkling that it's time to at least ask some questions. So Jill and I set out on what is a six-month journey to answer her $64,000 question. Why are so many top advisors passing up the outsized transition deals and even deals that were bigger six or eight months ago that the big firms are offering in favor of going independent? So to answer that question, which is a good question and the right question, Let's look more closely at what we call the math behind a move, or at least the move to independence. You'll have to bear with me because I'm going to be throwing out some numbers that you'll have to listen closely. And I've written a piece that sort of mirrors this where you'll be able to see it in writing as well. But let's jump in nonetheless. So while recruiting deals have come down from their high watermarks in many cases, for an advisor like Jill, 
who's generating multi-millions in production, has a clean compliance record, and is growing, she should still be able to get a deal of 150 to 175% cash up front on a nine-year forgivable loan representing a taxable event at ordinary income rate. Certainly, there are earnouts or back-end payments on those deals, but most advisors focus most on the upfront portion. A typical payout for an employee-based advisor at a major firm is around 45%, but keep in mind that the true net payout is often much lower than that if you consider haircuts from the firm, products and services that the advisor either doesn't get paid on at all or gets a haircut on, and advisor paid sales support and other expenses. So net in a lot of cases is more like 30 to 40% as opposed to 45 or 50%. A move to the RIA space, assuming you do so without bringing in outside investors, would represent a couple of things. One, at least a 20% bump in take-home economy. So how do we get there? We assume that the margins for a well-run RIA hover around 65%. We've seen some go as high as 70% in lower cost areas. Certainly we've seen RIA firms that have large staff where it could be less. But on average, a good quality firm, margins hover around 65%. Secondly, a move to the RIA space means the building of an enduring legacy with tangible enterprise value. So if you chose to sell your firm in, say, the same nine-year period that you would if you were signing on to a transition deal with another major firm, you could do so by putting the business on the open market, meaning selling the business when you're ready, creating optionality and competition for it, and for sure, creating optionality and competition drives price. Or you could choose to sell it to your next generation, which is a very popular option in the RIA space, or what we call an internal buyout. There is a whole cottage industry born of both capital and strategic support accessible to younger next generation to buy out senior partners, so easy to accomplish, but still the business gets valued and you, the RIA, determine who the best buyer for that business is. Even if your practice hasn't grown a bit in nine years, which is obviously a ridiculous assumption, a $350 million business would sell for a likely 7 to 9x EBITDA multiple with capital gains treatment. So let's say that again. A $350 million business would sell for a likely 7 to 9 times EBITDA multiple at capital gains treatment. In the RIA space, for every billion dollar threshold you hit in assets, the EBITDA multiple goes up. So a business with a billion dollars might sell for a multiple of, say, eight to 10 times EBITDA, two or three billion, 
you may get to 10 or 11 times EBITDA. So the bigger the business and the more scaled the business is, the greater the EBITDA multiple is. That's obviously a big wow from an economic standpoint. But let's put some numbers to it so it makes more sense. Back of the envelope calculations would show that Jill's $3 million business as an RIA would likely have an EBITDA, if it's well run, of around $2 million. And I got there by essentially multiplying the $3 million in annual revenue by the 65% profit margin. And we assume then that, again, the EBITDA is $2 million for Jill's business as an RIA. And if we multiply that by seven to nine times EBITDA, we get a business value of between 14 and $18 million. So here's how that all adds up. Jill, as an RIA, would take home an additional $600,000 per year because of a payout boost. And again, that's assuming no growth. So that in the same nine-year period, she would realize an uptick in her take-home economy of more than $5 million. $600,000 additional income per year times the same nine-year period, that's an additional $5 million of ordinary income. If you add that to the business valuation of a minimum of $14 million, as we just illustrated before, this represents a total business value of more than $19 million or almost a million seven more than the cumulative $17 million that she would earn as an employee at most large brokerage firms. And that is without considering the impact of favorable tax consequences. I know that this all can sound very confusing if you don't see it in black and white. I wrote an article entitled The Math Behind the Move to Independence, which will make the numbers I'm referencing clearer. You'll find a link to that article on this episode's page on our website, diamond-consultants.com. But here's the bottom line. The superior long-term economics of the independent space of owning your own business and building an enterprise are indisputable. The long-term economics, even the short-term economics are better. And for sure, as we've discussed in other episodes, the benefits to clients are many. The notion of an advisor having more freedom and control to design, to customize, and to control the client experience, the pricing, and everything else that goes along with it is better for clients. But that's, again, a topic for another day. Ultimately, though, independence is definitively not right for everyone. Again, we talk about the idea that independence can be better for clients because the advisor has less limitations placed upon him or her, and because by the advisor having the ability to shop the street for just about everything and create competition for price and service, because the advisor can customize the client's service and pricing experience, it can be better for clients. 
But it doesn't mean, even though the economics are better for the advisor and the client service experience is better for the client, that independence should be right for everyone. For sure, that's not the case. There are many reasons why high quality advisors choose to practice as employees, not the least of which is the turnkey nature and brand names. The threshold question that every advisor needs to ask him or herself is whether they have the burning desire to be an entrepreneur. Or said another way, would being an independent business owner feel soulful? And would it move you closer to living your best business life? next episode, we'll dig into the quasi-independent space. While the name is the best we've got right now, it underestimates how sexy, sophisticated, and exciting it really is. It's where we're seeing a great deal of expansion in the landscape these days, and it's worth taking the time to learn what all the excitement is about. So I hope you'll join us. Until then, I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com and click on the tools and resources link for some valuable content. If you're not already a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. Feel free to email or call me if you have any specific questions. I can be reached at 908-879-1002 or by email at mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please know that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. Thank you for listening. I also want to thank wealthmanagement.com for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence. Mm